welcome to the Archimedes podcast of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. We're here today to talk about evidence-based medicine, how to put it into practice alongside a couple of really quite interesting case reports, that is cases with evidence associated with them and put together by real practicing clinicians to try to use the best evidence to manage common paediatric scenarios. Now, we open these things with a little bit of something about understanding how evidence-based medicine works. And this one is all about non-inferiority. Non-inferiority, I find quite an annoying phrase, mostly because it's got that feel of a double negative about it. But it's also really quite difficult to prove There's an increasing number of clinical trials these days that are designed not to show that superdrugamab is better than oldie elixir, but just that it isn't worse than it. But but how do you decide what is as good as the current treatment? I mean, in an ideal situation, what you'd be able to say is that it had exactly the same efficacy. But we all know that with chance wibbling around and the vagaries of life, then they'll never, well, very, very rarely come back with absolutely identical numbers. And and even if they did, we'd not be convinced that that was always going to be the case. And so instead, we need to think about its precision and its 95% confidence intervals. And so what we tend to do is set a lower bound for a reasonable difference. And that is to say that, say, the confidence interval doesn't cross that the new drug is 90% as effective as the old one. Now, even that idea that it's 90% as effective, if not a bit better, that, that means that it's good enough, that's open to interpretation. It would be even better, wouldn't it, if instead of just saying 90% as a guess, we actually set that lower bound of equal effectiveness as being within the minimally clinically important difference that patients describe. And, And that's the idea that if you have some sort of score that describes quality of life or movement or breathlessness or something like that, that you might get a mathematical change, but it doesn't really make a difference to the patient. That same sort of idea that if you did a large enough trial, you might find that one antihypertensive drug was one millimeter of mercury better than another one. But, but actually, that makes no difference to how a patient feels. So what's a minimally clinically important difference? And that's something that patients can certainly help us describe. Uh, for, for some conditions, for some scales, for some measures, that's already been researched and, and known quite clearly. Um, but there are other things where we don't know that. So for those people that are putting together and setting up clinical trials, aiming to show that there isn't a difference between superdrugomab and all the elixir, they need to put the work in to demonstrate that what they're claiming is equivalence really is equivalent, even in the eyes of what the patients are. And that's a really important thing. So, so bear in mind that, that if something is equivalent, that means that there is no clinically important difference between the two. We've already talked about things being underpowered and failing to show a difference, but those two are different concepts. Now, the first of our clinical questions is all about bronchiolitis, which in the current climate, and I'm 
doing this in uh, in March 2020 is somewhat overwhelmed with other forms of uh, virus, particularly novel coronaviruses. But the first report is from Fawad Arshad, who's a clinical lecturer and SPR at Sheffield Children's Hospital in the UK. The question relates to a child with bronchiolitis who's come in and has moderately severe disease in 40% oxygen, increasing work of breathing, the NG's been switched down a little bit but still still not great um, and consideration being given to starting high frequency nasal cannula oxygen. But the question's being asked, what dose of flow should we start? The protocol might suggest two litres per minute per kilo but but why? Is it better to start higher or lower? Where does that number come from? And so the question went away to, to ask in patients with bronchiolitis, does a high flow versus a low flow improve clinical outcomes, work of breathing, length of time in, in hospital, length of time on supplemental? Um, search Medline, Sinal and Cochrane uh, and came up with 282 potential papers but of that there were three that really looked like they would be interesting about this looking at different flow rates. One of those unfortunately only looked at PEEP. It looked at a physiological parameter rather than something that was important and related to the children um, but two others were decent sized trials that had asked the question. One of them was a multi-centre trial in PICUs across France with 246 infants in it comparing 2 versus 3 litres per minute and another was in nearly 170 children in a Turkish emergency department um, uh, looking at 1 versus 2 litres per metre squared. The other thing that's different about these, apart from one being in PICU, one being in the ED, is that the PICU paper, the 2 versus 3 litres paper, um, studied children under 6 months, whereas the Turkish paper looked at kids from 0 to 24 months old, so a different spectrum of disease perhaps. Both of them actually demonstrated the same thing in that whatever number that they were comparing, 2 versus 3 or 1 versus 2, there was no important difference between the combined failure rates in the PICU. Failure of high frequency occurred in about 40% of cases. In ICU, failure occurred in about 10% of cases. And that really talks to what it would be for the severity of disease, I imagine. Um, but it also might be physiological in that larger children uh, don't fail um, than smaller ones do. The bottom line from this is that for moderate and severe bronchiolitis, it seems reasonable to begin at two litres per minute per kilo and that upping it to three really isn't a great idea and doesn't really make much difference um, to the children. And, and also that there is some support for the use of one litre per metre squared and maybe you would consider that if it was more at the moderate end of the spectrum uh, and not so much of a poorly child but then you've got to wonder but why am I using high flow nasal cannula oxygen anyway? Our second case report is a situation that we do find ourselves in sometimes and that's when uh, a child has been away on holiday and been treated with a different medicine and then come back to the UK uh, and this time when they've had a recurrence of their event the family have come along and said when we were away they used this medicine the child really seemed to get better can we have it please and this situation is of an eight-year-old who was away on holiday 
had an asthma exacerbation and was treated with azithromycin at that time and was asked to carry it on to improve the control of their asthma. When they came back to the UK, the uh, parents came to a review appointment and asked to continue with the azithromycin because it had made the asthma better when used out, um, uh, out when they were away. Now, there's some sort of logic to the use of macrolide antibiotics in asthma. They seem to have some form of anti-inflammatory effect. They've been touted in the olden days as something that would prevent chronic lung disease in infants. There have been a lot of things thought about them and whether whether the sort of subclinical bacterial elements were, were making uh, asthma exacerbations worse. And a search of Cochrane and PubMed actually found in the end 11 relevant papers that could be part of this. Now, three of those were sort of before and after studies um, and a meta-analysis of those. Uh, and the other seven were RCTs, actually looking at asthma in a variety of slightly different ways using different sorts of macrolide. Now, all of those trials were small. They were a maximum of 60 or so participants, smallest one down to only 15 participants. So they're not very large studies. And many of them really focused on physiological measurements, uh, measurements of inflammation, measurements of uh, speed of breathing, rather than things like exacerbations, clinical scores, and outcomes that were of more relevance to the patients. Some of them showed some differences. Many of them showed no difference or even slight disadvantages. The before and after studies, as you would expect, the ones that were published were more positive and they were the ones really that triggered off the idea that maybe this was worth putting into a clinical trial. However, when you pull all of this information together, there really isn't a strong benefit to be had from macrolides in asthma, and that's probably why they're not in the guidelines, particularly when you weigh in the idea that any small physiological benefit that, uh, that accrued would be offset by the increase in antimicrobial use and therefore probably resistance patterns. It might be uh, suggested by this clinical bottom line, but I think possibly debated by respiratory physicians that in select cases with very resistant asthma, that it might be worth having a go to see if it made a difference because there's some evidence to support that, but it's certainly not the routine use of macrolides in asthma, despite what happens in other places. So that's this month's Archimedes podcast. We do hope that you are all well. Um, and at the moment, there is a pandemic when we record this and when we release this. The BMJ has collected together all of its resources around the novel coronavirus and the COVID-19 respiratory disease. So that if you are looking for information on this subject, please do go to the BMJ stable and have a look there, along with the other resources that exist around the world. We hope that you stay safe and that your family stay safe and we look forward to speaking to you again soon.